0: Well, if you will turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, please, and we'll uh, continue this series in uh, Mark's Gospel. We're in chapter 1, Mark chapter 1, and this evening we're looking at verses 12 and 13. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. I know some of you are thinking, boy, we're making great progress, two verses tonight. But there's a lot here that we need to consider. Mark chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him, that is Jesus, out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for the gospel of Mark and for teaching us about your son, about his ministry, and while he was on the earth for three years in public ministry, we do pray, Lord, that you would continue to teach us about him and what it is he has done for sinners like us. We thank you for the gospel, and we pray that even more so tonight we would get a better handle on it. Be Driven deeper, deeper into it, uh, that we would know you and love you more, and we pray this in Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Well, we will continue our series tonight uh, in uh, the Gospel of of Mark. Uh, I've entitled this series "Knowing Jesus." And uh, is there anything uh, that should be more of a priority in our lives uh, than knowing Jesus? Of course, this morning we talk about listening. Uh, to Jesus, and uh, that 's a uh, something we must do if we are going to know him uh, and here in uh, mark 's account of christ 's life, we have uh, this uh, if you have been a-, a Christian for some time, you know your bibles decently well you 're going to know this story, and uh, this story is not found just here in Mark but also in the other synoptic gospels uh, and uh, and so so much here, so much theology really packed into these two. Uh, verses that I hope we'll be able to get a better handle on will also be taken uh, to Romans chapter 5 uh, this evening uh, because here we are shown uh, the first Adam and the last Adam so clearly set forth. Uh, we've already learned, of course, about John the Baptist's ministry, John the Baptizer. He uh, inaugurated Christ's ministry with his baptism of repentance. We learned that Christ didn't need a baptism of repentance, as it were, but he, uh, in our place, stood and was baptized uh, as our representative, as the one who would give his life for us, and so John baptized him. When he baptized him, we had the confirmation of the Holy Trinity, uh, the Father declaring, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased, uh, the Spirit descending on Christ. Uh, like a dove. And uh, so the, the holy trinity of God there and the confirmation of his public ministry as the Messiah. Christ identified himself with sinners. And we're going to see more of that uh, idea here in our text for uh, this evening. Well, with Peter's influence, uh, the author of this gospel, Mark, John Mark, quickly takes us from Christ's baptism to an intense struggle between Jesus and the devil in the wilderness. Uh, look with me again at verses 12 and 13. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Uh, so, this is just after his baptism. Um, he is uh, given a trial uh, immediately. And there's more to it than just that he overcame temptation. We're going to see that tonight. But this is often the case. This is often the case of what happens. Uh, when you go into ministry or you take on a new ministry is you are placed into a challenging situation. The Lord, uh, He knows how to keep His uh, saints humble. He knows how to keep His ministers uh, humble. Uh, I think of this work. Some of you have been here since um, uh, since day one of Christ Church Presbyterian, and you'll know that just after a few months uh, of, of starting Christ Church uh, a little over 10 years ago, uh, that I was diagnosed with uh, thyroid cancer. And uh, when you're drawing up your plans uh, for a church plant, that's not on the list. Uh, but the Lord knows what He's doing, obviously. And uh, he, he, he will break us down in order to build us back up, to humble us, to make us more dependent upon Him. And that's what He does uh, in times of trial and difficulty. Uh, and so praise the Lord for that. But here there's so much more, uh, to Christ being driven immediately out into the wilderness uh, after his baptism, his inauguration into his public ministry. Uh, now it's interesting here that here this account is given in two verses. In Matthew, uh, it's much longer. Matthew chapter four, verses one through eleven, has this same uh, account. And there's uh, Luke four, one through thirteen. Uh, this this account is so much shorter. Uh, and uh, many of you uh, are are familiar with this threefold temptation. Again, we don't have all the detail here, but you remember that he was tempted to turn a stone into bread. He was uh, tempted to bow down to Satan uh, in return for all the kingdoms of the earth. Uh, he was uh, tempted to jump off the temple and be uh, rescued by uh, angels from from heaven. And we learn that in each of these temptations, there was a ploy to get Jesus to sin By disobeying the will of his father. In each instance, Christ employed the word of God from Deuteronomy uh, to fight off uh, temptation. And uh, we know these uh, responses were from Deuteronomy 8 and Deuteronomy 6. And typically, when uh, this passage or the passages from Luke and Matthew are, are preached, the focus is on overcoming temptation. And that's it. Uh, Really, nothing more. And we can gain much from that uh, kind of preaching, uh, but it misses one of the main points of this passage, which I want us to drill down into uh, this evening. Uh, And so uh, uh, we want to um, remember, first of all, the main thrust of Mark's prologue or introduction uh, ending here at verse 13. We want to remember the context of this of this book and what is that uh, thrust of the introduction and the context. Well, we've learned this from, from previous weeks, haven't we? Uh, from verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Um, and then it goes on to talk about John the Baptist's role in being a messenger, a, a, a forerunner of Christ. And so this, this entire first 13 verses is really dedicated to informing the reader of who Christ is and what He came to do, which helps us uh, to understand why uh, He says what He says here in verses 12 and 13. You see, this is the unfolding drama of redemption. This is John Mark giving us this account of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ to show us who He is and what He has done Uh, for us. So the context in which Mark wrote this gospel also helps us uh, to understand his brief but meaningful account of Christ's temptation. Mark wrote to the Christians in Rome. We've learned this already. He wrote to the Christians in Rome in the mid-60s AD. Who was emperor of Rome in that period? It was Nero. It was Emperor Nero who was inflicting great persecution on the Christian church, falsely accusing them of causing the great fire of Rome, and, and uh, he was so upset with their monotheism. These Christians were often taken, of course, uh, uh, during this time and, and lit up like candles in Nero's garden. Of course, we know the history of Rome and Christians being uh, Uh, placed in the Colosseum and torn up by hungry lions with thousands of spectators uh, cheering uh, them on. So this relates to Mark's brief rendering in verses 12 and 13 because of what is emphasized is Christ's 40-day wilderness experience among the wild beasts and the prince of darkness, that is, Satan. Think of yourself as a suffering Christian in Rome with Emperor Nero uh, on the throne. Uh, He is out to get Christians. Say you think of yourself as as one of those, uh, always afraid for your life, always afraid that if someone finds out that you're a follower of Christ, that you could be literally burned uh, as a candle in his garden or put in the Colosseum. To be torn up by wild animals. What these suffering Roman Christians were being pointedly reminded of here in Mark's account of Christ's wilderness experience is that Jesus, who is the Son of God and the Son of Man, understands the loneliness, the hunger, and the great spiritual anxiety that they feel. Like them, like us, Christ has experienced the thorny wilderness brought on by Adam's sin. And there is comfort knowing that Christ understands our struggles. And he promises to always be by our side, even in the midst of our greatest trials. John fourteen twenty seven, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you, Let not your hearts be troubled. Let them not be, neither let them be afraid. uh, Through this account of the temptation of Christ, the Christians at Rome and throughout the ages are exhorted to take comfort in him, to take comfort in him. The one who suffered in our stead and who will one day lead us forever out of this wilderness of sin, misery, and suffering. There's a reason why you have this theme in in the book of uh, Peter, 1 Peter, that we are exiles, that we are pilgrims, that we are strangers in this land. This is the way we are to conceive of ourselves. When we think about our own self-identity as Christians, we're not to think about ourselves primarily as of this world. We are in the world, but not what? Of the world. As one Puritan said, we are all Noah's in God's ark. We are all Noah's in God's ark. There's the, uh, the sea uh, that is raging always with sin and, and, and corruption and temptation and, and persecution and suffering and all these things. But we are in the ark, and the ark is Christ. We are in Him and, and we are in the world, but not, not of the world. We are of Christ. And you have the picture, of course, of the people of Israel being uh, delivered out of the hands of Egypt. We read earlier uh, in Exodus 32 of the uh, accounting of God's people being delivered out of the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt, and they were brought into the wilderness to worship and to trust God. They were brought out into the wilderness to learn how to trust God and to live by faith. And so we have these pictures in the Bible that help us to understand this history in the Bible, to help us understand our own Christian experience and how we are to think of ourselves. The prosperity gospel, of course, uh, is contradictory to this, is antithetical to this biblical theme and how we are to conceive of ourselves as Christians. It says, no, you are not to live in the wilderness, you're not to live as pilgrims and and strangers and aliens in this world, you are to be of this world and to get as much of this world as you can because that's what God wants for you. He wants you to live a pain-free, happy life on this earth. And if you have real faith, that's what you will have. But of course, that's a wicked and, and hell, hellish doctrine because we know that it's in God's purpose for us to first experience humiliation, and then exaltation, first suffering and then glory. Our best day is to come, the eternal day, with our Lord. Right now we learn how to be weaned off of this world and to fight against temptation and to trust in the Lord in the midst of suffering. And so the first point I want to make uh, this evening is that there's a great contrast, a great contrast between Adam in the Garden of Eden and Christ in the wilderness, We have a a massive contrast in our text uh, this evening if we understand it properly. There is the first Adam. There is the first Adam. In Genesis, uh, we learn that Adam lived uh, in chapter 3 in a beautiful garden. Adam was, of course, created uh, in perfect original righteousness, living in perfect communion with God and perfect harmony with creation. Uh, there were no tsunamis and hurricanes, and, and uh, there would have been no weather channels back then trying to scare everybody about the next storm. There were no storms. Uh, everything was peaceful, and, 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 and Adam was commanded to live in obedience to God's law and to exercise dominion over the earth, and to, which included the animals, to name the animals. There were no worries about a, a tiger jumping out of the bush and, and eating Adam in these days. God made a covenant with Adam that if he remained obedient to God, then he and all of his posterity would live in paradise forever in blessed harmony with God. There was also a negative side to this, that if he disobeyed God and broke his law, then he and his posterity would die, both physical death and spiritual death, and they would be cast out of the garden to live in the wilderness, east of Eden, expelled from the garden paradise where even the animals themselves would be a threat. We learned in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 22, some months back, that even creation itself was spoiled by sin, cursed because of sin. This is the first Adam The second Adam, to put it simply, is Jesus Christ, is Jesus Christ. He came to put right what Adam made wrong through his sin. Look with me at Romans chapter 5. Look with me at Romans chapter 5 if you have your Bibles with you. Some theologians have called this federal theology, that's Adam represented the entire human race, and Christ represents his elect, but we have this principle of representation, federal headship. And we see that so clearly here in Romans chapter 5, beginning, let's start uh, in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men because all sinned. So you get the picture here. Adam sinned, and that sin, that original sin, spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. Notice that language there, a type of the one who was to come. Adam, the first Adam, was a type of the one who was to come. Who is that type? Well, of course, that's Christ. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through one man, through the one man, Jesus Christ. Death through Adam, life through Christ. Condemnation through Adam, forgiveness and grace through, through Christ. So Adam, he lived in the garden paradise. He was without sin, but With the potential and possibility to sin. He was tempted by Satan and he gave in and transgressed God's law, thereby causing death, misery, and sin to enter the world, not just for himself, but for all of mankind who would come after him. As is so clearly depicted in Mark 1 12 and 13, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, entered into the miserable wilderness. He he did not come down and live in a garden paradise. He came down into our sin and our misery in the wilderness. The wilderness that was cursed as a result of Adam's sin and was also tempted by Satan himself, but unlike Adam he did not fail. He did not give in to that temptation. And this is the point. This is the point. Please listen closely here. Mark's account of the temptation of Christ is less about the actual temptations and more about Christ's role as the second Adam, the one who would repair the damage that the first Adam caused, the one who would bring about the redemption of his people and the restoration of creation itself. Christ came to repair that which Adam had Brought upon the world. Adam was in the blessed garden. Christ was in the cursed wilderness. Adam was tempted by the devil. So was Christ. Adam gave in to temptation and brought sin, death, and misery to all people. Christ resisted temptation. He overcame temptation and brought freedom from the bondage of sin and life and eternal joy to those who would receive him by grace through faith. Adam failed to obey in the garden. Israel failed to obey in the desert, as we read earlier in Exodus 32. We fail to obey in the wilderness. But Christ, he never failed. He never sinned. That's the point of this passage that Christ, the second Adam, went into the wilderness in which we live. And he never failed. And he faced Satan head on. Hebrews 4.15 teaches us that Jesus was tempted in all things and yet what? Without sin. Tempted in all things, yet without sin. Let us be ever mindful that Christ's obedience in this passage demonstrates that the gospel is more then just Christ died for you. As important as that is, it is also Christ lived perfectly for you. If all we had was the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross, we would be forgiven of all of our sins, all of our Uh, rags of our unrighteousness would be forgiven and removed, but we would still stand before God without the requisite righteousness to stand before Him. Where does that come from? Well, it comes from Christ. He obeyed the law for 33 years, and He gives us, as it were, that obedience. His obedience becomes ours. He gives it to us. It's called imputed righteousness. And so we are forgiven. The gospel declares to us that we are forgiven of all of our sins, but not left naked without our sins. We are then robed in the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so when we wake up in the morning, we wake up in the morning as forgiven sinners, robed in the very righteousness of Christ, and we stand before God no longer condemned but justified. And that is the glory of the gospel. That's how we can walk by faith, because our salvation isn't about what we have done. It's about what Christ has done. It's not about what we can do in the future. It's about what Christ has done in the past. And so we glory in this uh, this gospel. Christ lived with perfect obedience to the law of God. He satisfied all the requirements of the covenant made with the first Adam in the garden. And so to receive Christ through faith, we receive Again, not only the forgiveness of our sins, but the very righteousness of God in Christ. Look with me at Romans uh, chapter 3. This is the main thing that Paul talks about, isn't it? Uh, Right after he gives this long section on uh, the universal depravity of man, after Saying in verse 20, for by works of the law no human being will be justified in God's sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We cannot be saved through the law. We cannot obey the law and be saved by God because our obedience is, is so falls so short. It's as filthy rags. We cannot work our way to God. We cannot be good enough because our even our good works are tainted uh, by sin. But the good news starts in verse 21 of chapter 3 of Romans. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. God's righteousness has been manifested to us apart from the law. This is a saving righteousness that's given to us. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God... in Jesus. Turn over with me to uh, the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 3. Paul, he begins this chapter by talking about all the, the spiritual accolades that he has, the, the things that he could boast in if he was going to be a Pharisee, boasting in his own works, basing, uh, boasting in his own ethnic ties. But he says this in verse 7 But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Again, that is the aim of this sermon series to know Christ. And Paul says, anything that I had, anything that I did in the past, it is uh, I count it as nothing in comparison to knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Now listen to this. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the righteousness that we are given. uh, uh, Adam had original righteousness in the garden, but when he sinned, he lost that original righteousness. And all of his posterity lost it as well. And so we are devoid of that original righteousness. We are born not with original righteousness, but we are born in sin. And so we need righteousness again. Not only that, we need the forgiveness of our sins. How can we get this? On our own it's impossible, but what is impossible with man is possible with God. And he sends his son into the world to pay the debt of our sin as the perfect law keeper. He meets the standard and requirements of God's righteousness and dies on the cross. And then the great exchange happens. Our sin to the cross, his righteousness to us. And we stand before God justified. And so the gospel is more than just Christ died for you. The gospel is that Christ lived for you and satisfied all righteousness and all the requirements of God's law and then died for you and gives us this glorious gift of righteousness You know, so often the devil will whisper in our ears, you are not doing enough. You are not worthy. You don't measure up as a Christian. And your answer to that, your answer to that is to say, you are right, but Christ is worthy. Christ did measure up, and I'm united to him. Say what you want, Satan, but I am in Christ, forgiven of my sins, robed in the very righteousness of Christ, and my desire by his grace is to serve him, to obey his law, to walk in his ways, to mortify the sins of the flesh, to be empowered by the Spirit, to live the Christian life. Not to earn my salvation, but to show my gratitude for my salvation and my love for the Lord. Listen to this, the words to this wonderful hymn by Augustus Toplady, an 18th century hymn writer. In you we have a righteousness by God himself approved. Our rock, our sure foundation this which never can be moved. Our ransom by your death was paid for all your people given, the law you perfectly obeyed that they might enter heaven. As all when Adam sinned alone in his transgression died, so by the righteousness of one our sinners justified. We to your merit, gracious Lord, with humblest joy submit again to paradise restored in you alone, complete. It is the merits, it is the obedience of Christ alone, which are the grounds of our justification before God. Christ, the second Adam, takes our hand as it were. And leads us back into the garden paradise. We were cast out. Humanity was expelled from the garden. But it is Christ that brings us back in. We can't go in on our own. There is the angel with the flaming sword. uh, An image of God's judgment. That we cannot enter in on our own. But Christ was slain as it were. By that judgment on the cross. He was thrust through by that angel of death at the front of the garden on Calvary so that we could enter in with our resurrected Lord, united to our Savior. Westminster Shorter Catechism question and answer 33 wonderfully sets forth the definition of justification. What is justification? Justification is an act of God's free grace, an act of God's, it's not a process. Justification before God is not a process. It's an act of God's free grace wherein He pardons all our sins and accepts us as righteous in His sight only for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. He pardons all of our sins and He imputes righteousness to us through faith. Though Moses and Elijah were great servants of God who also spent 40 days and 40 nights fasting and praying before God, they could not as mere men repair the damage that Adam had done. It had to be someone greater than Moses and Elijah, someone who would be born of a virgin and live a life of perfect obedience. That person was none other than the Son of God who became flesh And lived among us. He did all of this for you. He did all of this for you. Every sin that you've committed in your life. The sins you've committed this past week. The sins you've committed today. Jesus came to live for you. To obey that law. And to die for you. And to rise for your salvation. So dear ones as we close this evening. And as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. Let me exhort you to believe this whole gospel not just half of it, not just Christ died for you, that Christ lived for you. He lived in perfect obedience for you. And every time you thank God for your salvation, thank Him not only for the passive obedience of Christ, which He carried out on the cross, but the active obedience of Christ, which He fulfilled during His 33 years of life. Why didn't Jesus just come down as a 33-year-old and die on the cross and rise on the third day and then shoot back up to heaven? Some would think in their concept of the gospel that that would have been enough. So why live the 33 years? It wasn't so that Jesus could simply be an example for us. It was so that he would fulfill all righteousness. His baptism And this story of his going into the wilderness reinforces this this fact. It was J. Gresham Machen, the founder of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, uh, the founder of Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia, who was in the Midwest in the middle of winter, dying, and he sent a telegram, I believe it was to John Murray. And on that telegram, as he was dying, he sent this and said, thank God for the active obedience of Christ. He was thankful in meditating upon the active obedience, the righteousness of Jesus Christ as he was about to meet his maker. And do you know why? Because you do not want to be found on that day not wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Because if you are not wearing the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the only thing you're wearing is a robe of your tattered sins and excuses and self-justifications. But oh, what a day it will be when you stand before God and you're wearing the very righteousness of Jesus Christ, forgiven of all of your sins. This understanding as well, it it reminds us of the wickedness of, of legalism. We can't add anything to what Christ has done. We realize we cannot do that, and so we give thanks for the righteousness of Jesus Christ in our stead. It also guards against licentiousness. A right understanding of grace, a right understanding of a receiving of the righteousness of Christ does not compel us to want to sin against Christ and to take him for granted. And to think, oh, well, I've got the righteousness of Christ. I can live as I want to live. That kind of an attitude demonstrates someone who does not have sincere faith. This passage also, of course, teaches us to flee temptation. It's not primarily about this, but it does teach us to flee temptation and to know God's Word and to use God's Word as we fight against Temptation. And it's important to remember that temptation is not a sin and of itself. To be tempted externally about something does not make that a sin, but it has the capacity, doesn't it? To either strengthen our faith and resolve or to bring turmoil into our life. If we stand up against temptation that we face in this life, then we become stronger. If we do not, we invite turmoil into our lives. So in a sense, temptation can be positive for the Christian if we do not give into it. And we are tempted all the time, aren't we? I love this quote by John Owen. He writes this in 1658, quote, temptation is like a knife that may either cut the meat or the throat of a man. It may be his food or his poison, his exercise Or his destruction. You see, the Spirit led Christ into the wilderness to help fulfill his calling, that is, to be tempted and to overcome on behalf of his people. Even so, Christ is an example for us here to flee temptation in our relationships and in our work and in our interaction with screens. We must flee temptation. And so, dear ones, may our lives be characterized by heartfelt belief in the finished, redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And in response to that amazing grace that we have been shown, a passion to flee temptation, as did our Lord. May our love for Christ and the gospel and all that he's done for us compel us and motivate us to flee temptation, even as did our Lord. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you uh, for this text. We thank you for all that it teaches us and for the depth uh, of uh, the gospel truths that are found here. We thank you for your Son, for our life in Him, for our forgiveness in Him, for the righteousness that's imputed to us through our union with Him. And we pray it would compel us to live godly lives in this present evil age, to flee temptation, to fight against temptation with your word in our hearts. And may you receive all the glory. And we pray in Jesus' name.